Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your pop culture podcast bugle. I'm Andrew Harrison. And I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Yelena Sofronievich. This week, pushing ahead of the daydream, you may have already seen new Bowie documentary, Moon Age Daydream. Is it all it's cracked actor up to be? <laughs> Plus, we talked to the brilliant David Keenan, author of novels steeped in esoteric music culture, including the cult classic This Is Memorial Device and his new novel, Industry of Magic and Light. Sean, Yelena and I have an impeccable list of all things pop culture coming out in the next few months on stuff you might have missed too. Plus we get to choose our favourite songs of all time. Mm. What on earth will they be? And let's just say we have some news. All this and more on today's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker, and like I say, we have news. Uh, Nothing lasts forever, as a wise band once sang, and after six years of podcasting, originally as Big Mouth, and now under our new name, the time has come to bring down the curtain on the Culture Bunker. This week is our finale edition. There are some changes coming on the bunker, and it's probably time to give the old girl a bit of rest. So we've enjoyed doing the Culture Bunker enormously. We've discovered loads of exciting stuff while we're doing it, and it's taught us the art of podcasting, which will live on in the bunker itself, and oh God, what now, and all the other shows we're going to do in the future. Sean, I'm, I'm choking up a little bit here. Yeah, it's a I sad moment, actually... isn't it? Yeah, sad it moment is. with the podcasting nation. Yes, it is. Yes, I didn't think I was going to be emotional till tonight when I have a beer and now there you go. <laughs> a little bit. Well, listeners are already queuing around the studio. There, <laughs> yeah, there's miles of them. But as far as Tower Bridge, I hear, it's to pay their respects. The nation is coming together. Um, what, what have are. been what have been your favourite bits of doing it? Because you've been here for years. I know. I mean, t- too long. <laughs> That's hmm. probably what they're saying. Um, I mean, what, what bits aren't my favourite? I mean, the special <laughs> guests that we had have been absolutely fantastic. And the ones that stay around to chat afterwards, propaganda. We propaganda, get brilliant. They were just so fantastic. Look, couldn't get rid of them. They were so <laughs> couldn't wonderful. get rid yeah. of them. When we had a curry uh, with Orbital, because they were so late and changed it so many times, took us for a curry in Oxford Street, and that was really right. good. Yeah. Um, I like Terry Hall, who actually did all of his homework mm. and like watched everything, but yeah. loads of it, and stuff, because some some of them don't watch some everything. Don't they watch just do half closely. an hour. Yeah. yeah, or something like that. Um, Claire Grogan, as well, was obviously yeah. a particular favourite of mine. I'm still sort of fizzing with that. Uh, what about you? Well, I think my favourite bit was when we did Neil Tennant and his laptop battery yes. was running down and he kept having to give us... You know, 32%, 28%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21%. 21
the William Hartnell of this podcast. <laughs> it's uh, still available on all the platforms. Five years of pop culture talk. That'll, that'll keep you going, won't it? We're going to put a link to Big Mouth in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you're still a member of the Big Mouth Patreon, our original backers, our hardcore original army. Who have the T-shirts. Who have the T-shirts. Yeah. Don't worry, we will stop collecting money from you. <laughs> we're not, we're, we say that. It, it, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're not going to keep should, taking... The tech should work. Yeah, two pound a month for you forever. So <laughs> thank you for all of your support. Yes, thank you. Thank you to listeners and all our guests. So it's a sad week, but we're going to make it a banger. So let's say hello to this week's special guest. David Keenan is an author and music writer, being a regular contributor to The Wire magazine and many others for over 25 years. His debut novel, the award-winning This Is Memorial Device, was published in 2017 and set... Many hearts alight who have Mm -hmm. a certain liking for that sort of music. He's just published Industry of Magic and Light. So welcome to the grand finale of the Bunker of Culture, David. We're delighted to have you. Oh, thank you so much. What an honour. Yes. (laughs) It's an honour to speak to you. You once said writers are frustrated musicians and that you had been a frustrated musician who'd wanted to be a rock writer. How does it feel the other way around? Yeah, it's so odd because everyone always has the opposite. Like rock writers were people who were frustrated, who were never able to be in a mm. band. But I think what happened with me is I fell in love with rock writing probably at the same time as I fell in love with music, particularly the writer uh, Lester Bangs. I read there was a collection of his work, Psychotic Reactions on Carburetor Dung, that came out in like 1988, and it just it blew my mind. I mean, he wrote about he pulled together so many of the cultural interests that I had. And he wrote about things that I loved, like Lou Reed. And he wrote about them in a way that was as exciting as listening to them. So that became my ambition, really, as a rock writer. What I, what I always wanted to do was to write pieces that were not necessarily critical pieces. I never thought of myself as a critic. I wanted to write pieces that lived up to how the music felt, that was as exciting to read as the, the, the records were to listen to. So that was always my goal. And, 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 and then I took that sort of energy, in a way, and I applied it to fiction. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a golden age, wasn't it, where rock writing just could do whatever it wanted. There just seemed to be no censorship or bounds at that point. And also no admission fee, because like, that was more or less where outsiders, non-connected people, often working class people, would get to learn how to write. Yeah, totally. You're totally right. I mean, yeah, I've never done a creative writing class or anything that, like that in my, in my life, but the British music press was absolutely massive. I mean, at that period of time, it was a place of genuine, a genuine experiment. It was avant-garde writing. They are really modernist writing. And um, a lot of those writers were trying to find a way to write about sound that didn't betray it. So it became, you use things like synesthesia, you're inspired by science fiction writers, because it was really like encountering something quite alien and having to use language to define it. So it was a very exciting period of time, and it certainly informed my, my, my fiction as well. So apparently you were a record label boss back in the day. I was, yes. I, yes, I've had a few record labels as well. I also had my own record shop for about 10 years also. And um, we, we had a thing in the record shop. It, it, was a, it was a web store as well, but we had this thing where we didn't have any sound samples because we wanted it to be entirely like an old school music magazine. So I would review, and I only stocked things that I liked also because I could never bring myself to be phony and write a review of something I didn't care about. So I only stocked things that I liked and I reviewed every <laughs> record that came in. So I think over 10 years, I wrote a million words wow. just for a web, website alone. It was crazy. So you like Pete Bur- Burns in Probe Records. If someone came in for something that you disapproved of, they would get the evil eye and a load of, a load of chat. 
Oh yeah, I mean, I've, I, 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 I forgot how hardcore it was. I remember meeting someone quite recently who told me that they were banned from my shop for having an adverse <laughs> reaction to a record that I recommended. <laughs> I forget, I forgot I'd even done that, but I did feel quite proud. Yeah. Mm. And as a record label boss, did you go more Tony Wilson or a bit more Alan McGee? Or were you something else completely? Ooh, more Tony Wilson, I would say, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so meetings, label meetings where you'll go, as Baudrillard once said, and everybody goes, oh, God. <laughs> and then someone sits on the table and, yeah. Breaks it, yeah. yes. <laughs> well, we'll be talking to David a little bit later in the show. Press your space face close to the podcasting machine. Moon Age Daydream is director Brett Morgan's impressionistic tour through the life, times and faces of David Bowie. Is it documentary, a visual mixtape, a mess, as Slate magazine put it, or a whole new way to experience the work and meaning of a musician? Assembled from a truly formidable archive of clips of the Dame through the ages, with original Bowie music mashed up and remixed by Tony Visconti, Moonish Daydream is an epic production, but is it any good? It's been on limited engagement this week and it opens nationwide this weekend. Sean and I went to see it and it sounds a little bit like this. I'm a mama papa calling for you I'm the space invader I'll be a rock and roller bitch for you And what about the shoes? Are those men's shoes or women's shoes or bisexual shoes? They're shoe shoes, silly. <laughs> So, Sean, Moon Age Daydream, what did you think? Did you see David Bowie is the travelling museum exhibit, Andrew? I did. Yes. <laughs> did I spent a lot of time trying to find David Bowie's teeth in it and they were not in there. <laughs> and the tiny little spoon, I remember standing there yes, for a long time. Yes. I felt this was very much in the vein of this. Very much as we know, it's sanctioned by the Bowie estate. Um, so it's not going to be, as they call warts and all, but very much, I saw it in IMAX, which is what they're trying to press upon people in that you are with it, you are immersed. It is immersive. It is an experience. And it seemed very similar to that. And if you just have a wall-sized um, bit of film of David Bowie's face looking very beautiful, then that is part of the experience. What happens to the narrative? I don't know within this because I thought there was a lot of sensation to it, but I'm not sure about the substance underneath. And I'm very, very keen to know what you thought of the way that it's sort of chronological and it sort of isn't. It does hop about and what it chooses to pick from not just the life of Bowie, but the music of Bowie. I really enjoyed it. I was I was the force majeure of the art and the looks and the audacity and the craziness bowled me over. That said, you're absolutely right. It, this is a this is a product of the estate and also the labels, Live Nation and yeah. a BMG and everybody. These people are all involved. So there is an element of 
the authorised story to it. That said, within that, I thought they made quite a good job of it. I mean, the, the major question, there's a couple of major questions, one of which is avoided entirely. The word cocaine <laughs> appears once in this film, and it's on the T-shirt of a young lady going to see him, I think, at Earl's Court in the early 70s. Now, not talking about David Bowie's prodigious consumption of cocaine and how it shaped many of those personae, and also his attempt to escape from them in the 1970s, is a bit like talking about Maradona without mentioning a football. But that said, the other huge clangor in David Bowie's life is his, his, his dreadful 80s, which are not quite as bad as people remember. There are some fantastic Bowie tunes in the 80s. Oh, absolutely. You know, Loving the Alien, and uh, as, as we've mentioned on the podcast before, Time Will Crawl, a great song underneath all the crap. Many, many great songs, but it was largely, largely disastrous, particularly the ruinous hubris of the Glass Spider Tour, which is now a, a, an absolute byword for, uh, you know, rock star losing it, excess and pretentiousness. And to the movie's credit, it does a clever thing with that, which is it has young, cool, artistically valid, bold Bowie singing rock and roll suicide, possibly mm. at the Roundhouse or, not, or the Rainbow, rather. Mm. Not entirely sure. But basically, younger Bowie is criticising and bawling out older Bowie in yes. that sequence. And they have clips of the Pepsi advert, which I'd actually forgotten about with Tina Turner. And that, again, is saying it's soundtrack to rock and roll suicide. Yeah, it doesn't. So it doesn't actually write out all mm. of the catastrophes. And it has something to say say about that one something that doesn't appear something that's been airbrushed out is dancing in the streets we don't get to see that particular <laughs> monstrosity yeah we do get to see the get to the pepsi ad but i don't really want to concentrate on the uh, on, on the terrible things because what it is very good at is bringing home the emotional charge and rush and making you feel a little bit like it must have felt because we're both too young for you know full bowie and his full <laughs> original pomp yeah what it must have felt to be there some of this footage has been restored in a magnificent way to the extent that you can see every bead of sweat on, the, on yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, and every every crack in the makeup. And it did make me think differently about Bowie in a lot of ways, amongst other things, particularly in the Life on Mars videos, that and and, and his exceptionally, you know, fully androgynous period. Mm. But this was like this was a guy kind of imprisoned by his own beauty and desperate to stay imprisoned by it. Yeah, he looked very happy to be imprisoned by it, I must say. Yeah, Stockholm Syndrome, Bowie. Exactly. Well, yeah, Stockholm Syndrome, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it is the cliche of all cliches to talk about him as, as, a, as a chameleon. Mm. But some of those phases were... Um, more arduous to inhabit than others, I think. Mm. So it made me think differently of that. I actually do like the um, the montage approach because it uses an anachronistic approach, i.e. we'll see Bowie at the moment of his death in the Black Star video mm. a lot earlier than we would expect mm -hmm. when those themes are emerging earlier in his work. And vice versa, we'll see young Bowie pop up as a counterpoint to what, what he becomes. Ultimately, it, you know, it, it's kind of a story of redemption, actually, where he, <laughs> he, he actually finally grows into his art and himself. We get quite a lot of homilies about what it is to live a good life. And mm -hmm. we see Bowie touring lots of interesting places and growing as a person and as an artist. I'm not sure that's really as exciting as watching a leather alligator, sweaty, androgynous sex freak from space freaking out in a moon age daydream as it does in the, in the early elements. But that's just what I think, Sean. Did, did, <laughs> did it change your, your thoughts about uh, Bowie? It didn't change my thoughts. Um, as you know, I've had many thoughts <laughs> over the years, many, many dreams. And Part of it, as I say, it's the problem of it being teetering on hagiography, but you just can't complain if you're saying two and a half, almost two and a half hours of David Bowie's face. I think it's about creativity, the film, and I think it's actually Brett Morgan trying to understand how you sustain a creative career, because most of it is about that. And I think spirituality is a word 
that may be the euphemism for drugs here. We do get a lot of, this is how I made this album and the album was going to be awful. And then I discovered cut-up technique. Then I got Brian Eno, you know, and then I'm a terribly spiritual person, i.e. you took some drugs while you were making it. So I, I think it does skirt. I think it is a very skirting film, but yes, you just can't complain. What I thought was fascinating, did you love the Russell Harty and Mavis Nicholson interviews? Because that put him in context, and he's often out of context in this film. It's just him, but I loved seeing him interact. I like the fact that we get more sense out of Valerie Singleton than we do out mm-hmm. of certain rock journalists in this uh, yeah. in this film, because a good interview is a really good interview. And, and one of the interesting little tributaries of it is that this is a parallel history of most of the rock era mm. so bowie is the first rock star who was you know no i tell a lie the beatles were the first rock stars who were fans of rock and roll mm. bowie is the first rock star who's fans of who was a fan of that beetle wave yeah it's self-referential from the beginning it's got a history of rock and roll codified into it and he runs through the whole thing from beginning to what our past guest uh, David Hepworth would say, the end of the rock and roll era, he mm. considers it to be over. And there's a reason why Bowie keeps, at different phases of his life, keeps popping up with a quiff and a zoot suit. It's because that is when he first understood it, when he mm. first felt alive, when that, that was the rock and roll he grew mm. up on. And he kept sort of returning to it and finding mutations of it. And what would it be like if Billy Fury was from Mars and gay? That kind of thing. So th- th- I found that an interesting thing. But also fa- the fact that you see the surrounding apparatus of rock and roll evolve and change. In a period of five years, we go from Bowie on stage is the most exciting and terrifying thing that you could possibly see ever in history. And we pan to the audience and they're sitting on their plastic chairs politely. Five years later, Bowie is at Earl's Court with his fascistic sound and vision tour and people are freaking out and screaming and going crazy. By the time he's doing the Serious Moonlight tour, which is around the Let's Dance album, the audience is full of people in cap sleeve t-shirts uh going yeah dude bowie dude <laughs> bowie is dude, bowie rocks dude yeah. and we see we, we see everything changing around him we also see the way that music is reported because a lot of you know there are little bits of, of uh, music journalists appearing now and again and they look like such cliches they really do and going back to your point about uh russell harty it's actually the quotes proper journos who come across a bit a bit better, I think, less less wound up and swept along with this with the the star machinery. You know what as well though? What? I couldn't take my eyes off his teeth. Sorry to go back to his teeth, but he's, he's, the, you know, restoring the image, the images is one thing, but it, it, that respect, it is warts and all because the teeth were terrifying. <laughs> And then suddenly, at the end of the eighties, they weren't. I like the teeth. <laughs> I yeah. don't like it when he got them done, but that's me. Yes, the, the teeth do play a part in it. Um, you know, you know that the director had a heart attack just before editing this film. Did he? So he Not had surprised. to do this. Yeah, because he was a little bit stressed, so he had to do. So again, I think he is really pushing what is. What's going on? What's life and death within art? And I really enjoyed those bits. Do you not think there was a point where you thought that the film was actually going to end and then it carried on? <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, okay, it's the ending. Okay, all right, it's only been an hour. <laughs> well, I, I, to an extent, I, I, I actually do think it feels quite long. There's a lot mm. to pack in. And I was thinking, this is going to end and we're just going to pretend that the 90s didn't happen yeah. at all, are Tim we? Machine we're... is not mentioned. Tim Machine is not mentioned at all. Twin Peaks isn't mentioned, at, mm. I don't think, either. Or is it? Is there a bit in there from Twin Peaks I didn't spot? I don't think so. I think Angie Bowie appears like twice in yeah, still photographs. Stills, she was a huge figure. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of compressing cast down. My, my, I thought that it was just going to come to a shuddering halt or perhaps that we'd leap straight from uh, Loving the Alien straight to Black Star mm-hmm. as if the intervening years hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. One thing that did make me think differently about Bowie and his, and his world is, is the relationship with Iman. It's the, yeah. pretty much the only bit of his personal private life which the film alights upon. Mm. What the film emphasises is how 
designedly alone he was. He, he you know, this is not a person with a, 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 with lots of friends. He's not fabulously social. Mm. Uh, an observer, almost a kind of almost insulated and outside of himself. He mm. looks at himself as a third party. And when he marries Iman, there's, there's a, you know lots of, of talk about how in love he is and how it's changed his life and so on. I sort of got the sense that he almost you know, selects an amazing wife, much as he would recruit a new collaborator. You know, as if she was Carlos Alomar or really? or Brian. But that's you know, Dave. Yeah, you know, we know we have David and we have Dave, and Dave is the viz still, isn't it? Of him reading that on the on the thing. Dave was very much not present until that point. This is very much what we see as the artist. And at points that sort of did annoy me because, I mean, yes, I know that's what he wants to bring across. And I know that we're seeing the creative process. I did want a bit more Dave in it. And I got that with the Iman stuff. I found that very sweet. It's really touching. He just wants to be married at some point. He's sitting in the studio and he's doing it. he just wants to go home and have a cup of tea with his wife. It's lovely. Maybe I'm a bit cynical. <laughs> it is absolutely studded with Easter eggs and tiny mm. little references. Buster Keaton, Alistair Crowley, Lindsay Kemp, Oscar Wilde, you name it, it's in there, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And that whole crushing together of, you know, 1950s rock and roll with pulp science fiction into, you know, 1960s Velvet Underground, the kind of cannibalistic nature of stardom, the black hole of stardom into disillusion of the 1970s. The way that fiction, usually his, his acting roles and the music and the persona are kind of used as two sides of the same tool and this is is really interesting because the man who fell to earth stroke sound and vision stroke station to station bit it's almost impossible to disentangle you know the bowie of the cinema screen and mm. the bowie who makes the records they're all kind yeah, of yeah, the yeah. same person and the film really emphasizes that at the basic level as cinematic riches it's got a hell of a lot to play with and plays with it really well i think some of the footage is not fully restored, but I don't really mind that. I like a bit I of agree, yeah. a little bit of shonk yeah. in there. Got to ask you this though, Sean. That almost as kind of punctuations or stings in a radio show. We keep pulling away to this star field of space of a, like a dark moon mm-hmm. hanging in the middle of nowhere, while sort of bassy notes thrum away, <laughs> and it's kind of implied that this is the dead planet from the Black Star video. This is where Major Tom will go to die, and possibly where David Bowie will go to die. Yeah. Is the film being as pretentious as the Dame at its most pretentious best? <laughs> well, yeah, I think you're right. They're punctuation points and they're more mood than anything else. And I don't think they are to be taken enormously um, literally. What did you think I need to ask you of the Japanese shopping mall footage, which we see more than once? That was the thing that confused me. That was bookending something and I don't know what. Yeah, I, 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 when you've seen one Japanese shopping mall, you've seen them all. And, and, uh, <laughs> and he's sitting that... lonely, looking, you know, looking into middle distance near some Christmas trees. You go, okay, what? What? Yeah, what? I, I, yeah. I think a judicious seven-inch edit of this film would have been absolutely um, incredible. Something I wanted to ask you about, though. This film is full of brand new mixes, you know, posthumous remixes, edits, and so on, done by uh, Visconti. The Bowie estate has has not been shy of pumping out literally anything is this film part of the estate rinsing the dame or is does it does it stand on its own but in, in the parlance of the early parts of the film has david bowie sold out <laughs> um it's a good question i think people will actually be quite divided about this um i don't i think it is a good film it's not i feel so churlish the best film it could be but i you just can't argue with looking at him for so long it's not the changes coin purse is what i'd say which is where my jaw was on the floor and that's still on sale at bowiegallery.com i'm sorry 
<laughs> you will be glad to know that the sale of the David Bowie NFTs was suspended out of respect for the Queen. Well, you know, so they say there thank God, God for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> is this how we're going to experience pop culture in the future? Well, this comes back to you know, you know, when I went to see the little-known band, um, the Beatles, playback of the new Revolver. That I think this is very much in this thread is what it's doing. It's doing it with a good heart. Is it's trying to make this music as real as it felt. You know, it's like being there in quotes, it's trying to make it really vital and not ossified and set in amber. And for that, I think, you know, that that's, these are labours of love. They're the people who really, really want to do that. And that is really, really good. It's not meant to be a museum piece. It's meant to just show you that excitement. And for that, it's good. But obviously, that can just go off in different directions and not always in the best way with other people. Yeah, I mean, th- th- that was my overriding thing that I took away from mm. it was like, God, I wish I'd gone to that one and not the Glass Spider Tour on Main Road. <laughs> God, I wish I'd been old enough to go to the Rainbow Theatre yeah. or to Earl's Court and not to see, not to see <laughs> David Bowie uh, with a load of um, illuminated rubber tubes pretending to be a giant spider and nobody knows what it is. But still, to so- experience that and that's, yes. that's not all bad. And I also experienced on the way out seeing friend of the podcast, Justin Robertson, Ooh. who was absolutely delighted with it. And as we were standing there chatting, Christopher Eccleston walked in. Amazing! The doctor was on his way to see Bowie. The war wound got busted for selling Fleur Mabry's Mimenses, even though it was bullshit. They were looking for an excuse to shut down the shop because education is a dangerous thing in working class towns, especially in alternative education. So they charged in and seized all of their stock, everything, all the paperbacks and incense and posters and chapbooks, everything, on the basis that they were stocking obscene material. This was a turning point in the militancy of the hippies locally and the beginning of the spiral, really, in so many ways. The story of this alternative bookshop comes from David Keenan's new book, Industry of Magic and Light. It's set in the same mythical airdry of his best-selling exploration of the psychology of indie rock, This Is Memorial Device. But the new book goes even further back to the 60s and early 70s, a sort of summer of love letter to counterculture in Scotland. David, This Is Memorial Device describes Airdrie as a place where people were constantly making, you talk about them writing, singing, talking, debating, to prepare for a future that passed. Its asylum status kind of hides the fact it contained some of the greatest intellectuals and lovers in in the country. Why return to Airdrie for this book? What are the overlaps with it? I guess... One of the things that I wanted to do with Memorial Device, and it's become maybe a, a, an overriding thing and part of all of my books in a way, is to uncover magic where you don't expect it to be. I mean, I was very aware of that there was a sort of tradition, especially, especially in Scottish literature, of portraying Scottish working class towns as, as difficult, miserable places that had to be escaped. And there is no way that that was my experience. My experience, I had a magical childhood in Yardry, Um And... Um, there were so many eccentric people hidden away there. There were so many pockets of resistance and pockets of cultural activity that I wanted, as you said, I wanted to make a love letter to these towns and show in a way how being slightly culturally disenfranchised or being far away from the cultural centres actually strengthened the kind of art that was there because you needed a certain degree of belief that was kind of deeper than if you lived in London or even if you lived in Manchester. And so one of the one of the, 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 the lines from Memorial Device that I always quote is, it's not easy being Iggy Pop in Airdrie. In fact, <laughs> it's harder. 
it's harder to be eggy pop in Airdrie than it is to be eggy pop, I would argue. So Airdrie had caught me and I never I never suspected that I would actually return to it. Um, and I don't plan my books out. My books sort of happen. I always say they're sort of spoken from the air almost. I don't think them up. I don't start down, I don't sit down with an idea that I want to sort of extrapolate across a book. They just sort of begin speaking. And literally as this book began speaking, I was like, wow. I'm in Airdrie again. And not only that, it's the generation before Memorial Device. So I was very excited because I don't, you can't force your characters to turn up. You know, I believe my characters have their own life. So you just have to hope some of them will. And so I was very excited to see who I was going to see in the book. And some of the characters from Memorial Device indeed did turn up. And that was really exciting for me. I love the story of Fleur waiting for the bus stop in the lotus position as one of the original hippies. It's so evocative. Um, you also said once that working class patter is just like modernist literature, but better. Do you think there's something special about Airdrie or even Glasgow in particular? Or is it something that all towns are just always overlooked in favour of the kind of culture of the cities, as you said? Yeah, well, I think what I think my my books are about every small town they're not specifically about Airdrie and I think that's maybe why they connect because if you had a small town experience and you were in love with music and you turned on to culture and fallen in love for the first time and seen all the possibilities of the world then I think you can relate to that but yes I do I think the west coast of Scotland and Ireland and um, my dad was Irish you see and I think that they my father was illiterate he, he, he couldn't read or write but he could tell the most amazing stories the most amazing stories he had this faith in language that stories can somehow redeem suffering. I mean, he grew up during the Troubles. The rest of his family stayed there. They lived in the Ardoin. And they would tell these stories of really terrible things happening. And they would be killing themselves laughing. And they would be using the most, they would be competing to tell it in the funniest way. And so that really inspired me. And remember, my dad would always say to me, you need to read. You need to read. Reading will change your life. And I would think to myself, well, how the hell would you know? <laughs> you know, but but he had such faith in language, and I thought to myself, you know, if he could read most books, he would be so disappointed. <laughs> they, they wouldn't live up to his idea of what a book could do. So then I made a vow. My vow was that I would write the sort of books that would live up to an illiterate person's fantasy of them. Wow. That's a, that's a goal and a half, that. I've enjoyed Industry of Magic and Light enormously, and part of the joy of it is actually you know, unwrapping and understanding the the format and the structure of what you're discovering. Part of the setup is that we have this caravan stuffed with ephemera, which goes back to the, the history of these uh, Airdrie hippies and, and, and bands. And you explore the story and the characters through this time capsule of what in many respects is useless old crap but it is actually packed and freighted with meaning and you know full of everything from the hippies to the afghanistan hippie trail to a detective story which we're never quite sure is it real is it not real whose mind is it coming from but i wanted to ask you david i mean that that particular slice of alternative culture the council flat hippie the regional hippie the uh on the fringes of society lotus position at the bus stop hippie that culture is never really talked about you know the crossover between the standard sort of bbc4 documentary vision of hippie culture flowers and music festivals and the truth of it which is art happenings and fluxes and real deep alternative culture that stuff isn't talked about why do you think that is I think it's because it's just very easy to simplify histories. I'm much more interested in micro histories than macro. I'm not interested in the big events, you know. I mean, Woodstock appears in the book, but it's the Woodstock movie at the Coatbridge ABC Cinema. 
you know? So um, I'm my interest is in discarded culture almost. So what you said about the contents of this caravan, you could look at them as if just detritus, but in cultural detritus is often where the real story takes place. You know, and there's also something about fiction. It's a weird thing. I feel as if sometimes you can get closer to the truth of what happened through fiction than you can through a merely documentary sort of objective telling. So in a way, when you open this caravan, the caravan is treated almost like, like an Egyptian tomb. Yes. It is taken that seriously. Every single thing, you know, they find like discarded crisp packets, packet of quavers, you know, a packet of some cereal, but everything is handled with sort of reverence as if, if you can just put all these objects together, you'll sort of break the code and the story will reveal itself. And that's literally what happens as you go along in the book. The story starts to cohere through all of these random fragments and in a way, I think you get closer to the real story of what the counterculture meant to actual people than just to this sort of cultural arc that it's often talked about in a sort of like very simple sort of shorthand way. Yeah, and that really resonated with me because actually that's the way rock culture is looked at now entirely. Every bit, every atom of uh, Detritus stroke hidden clue, mm. you know, every B-side and unreleased track, every fag burn on a piano at Abbey Road is dissected for meaning as if we're all trying to build, you know, if we can finally solve this gigantic mm. super involved narrative we'll finally understand it and we never will yeah. but it's the yeah. process of doing mm. it the obsession of doing it yeah i think also now and i think now that the 20th century has passed i mean a lot of my books really are love letters to the 20th century as well because i believe it's the apex of so much of what humans achieved uh, culturally i think the post-war generation were probably the most lucky and exciting generation to live um and i think now as as rock culture maybe doesn't quite have the place in the mainstream, it doesn't change the culture in the way it did in the 20th century. I think we've come to realise how magical and important it was. And so we've come again to pour over all these little details because we realise that really these are the holy artefacts of our culture, the holy artefacts of our religion, essentially, as well. And in a way, that's what Industry and Magic and Light is about, the holy artefacts, the discarded artefacts that were part of this magical 20th century cultural experience. I sort of feel like that about my boxes of old handwritten tape things, you know, I sort of hang on to them because it's like, because one day historians will need this. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> There's parts of the book, David, where you talk about hippies being engaged in this war on reality and it sounds a lot like our kind of post-truth extreme right fringes of politics now i think going on what you've said andrew there's also been a kind of rethinking about the hippie movement as actually quite conservative and individual do you think david maybe that explains why the book although it's set so firmly in the 60s and 70s actually has such a strong residence now perhaps i mean my books are always about possibility you know, I mean, did all of this, were these hippies actually doing this stuff in Eardry? Some of them were, definitely. Um, and it's possible that all these events could have taken place. But I guess my thing about how reality changes is it comes from my experience of art. I mean, art really did, when I first discovered art and music, it, it, it did feel like reality was suddenly up for grabs. If you really took it seriously, you could transform the very streets of a working class town. They can become like a catwalk. And that's what they were to me. I, would, I was younger than the, than the post-punk generation and memorial device. And I used to go down the city centre with my gran and she would nip into fine fair. And I would sit on the wall and, and watch all these incredible characters, these incredible self-created characters in a way. And I, and I began to think, wow, you can rewrite your own life. It's not written. These books can give you that sense of permission to rewrite things. So in a way, what happens in my books is reality itself is up for grabs so much that even the laws of physics are, are, are challenged. Magical things take place. And I think that's just through sort of 
power of belief. And in a way, I don't think of the Hippie Project as a, as a utopian project. And that's what it's often, like it was a utopian project that failed somehow. But I think the Hippie ethos still exists. I mean, I, in my heart, I'm a Hippie. I live even today in the 21st century, basically as a Hippie. And I think that what the Hippie programme was, it was, it was, it was radical in the way that it didn't want to change the world. It was a culture of non-improvement. It was a culture that almost said, this is enough. We have everything here in front of us. We can grow our own vegetables. We can build our own hut. We can make our own songs, you know? So it, it wasn't, I, I don't see it as that sort of utopia that failed at all. I see it as something quite different. I see it as something, an ethos that's still alive and it's still vital. And it's a DIY ethos, essentially, which runs through all of my books because the culture I love most is do-it-yourself culture. I want to come back and talk about the writing process a little bit as well. The book comes in two halves, really. The first in the form of this inventory and the second in the form of a tarot card reading. I noticed that one of the reviews of your book said that you can make your books now do pretty much anything. Do you think this is your most experimental book yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> What's coming I, 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 then? <laughs> I think, like, well, I think actually, um, I think Extabeth and Monument Maker, which, which is my third and fourth novels, I think they were the ones that... They're, they're certainly my most experimental, I think. In a way, I feel like, I think it's a one one massive piece of fiction that I'm writing and all those books are set in the same parallel universe, in a way. I think my first two books were books that I always knew I would write. The one, the one about Memorial Dice and the one about For the Good Times, Set in the Troubles. Then I began writing books that seemed inexplicable to me. Extabeth and Monument Maker. Monument Maker took me 10 years. I almost felt like I was losing my mind when I was writing that book. So coming back to Industry Imagine Light felt like it's like a post-Extabeth memorial device, almost. That's what I, I kind of see it as. And you mentioned this as memorial device. I was fortunate enough to go and see the adaptation in Edinburgh last month, um, which was just absolutely amazing to watch. And it brought to light a lot of the parts of the book that didn't necessarily hit me as much at the time. One of them is you basically talking about, or rather the character, talking about how they're always gathering material rather than necessarily living it. And this writing almost is a process of writing themselves back into history, which is a theme I think really is touched upon in Industry of Magic and Light as well with, with the documentation. Do you think you see yourself in that sense more as a journalist or a fiction writer? Because you are really documenting this time in, in history. No, I feel like a fiction writer. Um, but one of the things I want to do in a way is that um, I think that art ultimately should cure you of art. Art <laughs> should allow you, you should walk through art and out the other side into life. So I always say that um, Rambo is the most successful poet because he cured himself of poetry at 18 <laughs> and then walked off into life. Now, that's what, in a way, that's what I want to do. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm driven, I'm possessed by these books, but I'm trying to get it done so that I can then disappear into life myself. So I hope one day to stop writing, I will definitively walk away at some point. I'm not going to be the, an old guy farting out kind of half-assed novels later in my life. Once, once what I've come here to do is done, I intend to walk off at, into life to step through the book and out. And in a way, that's what all my characters are trying to do as well. They're using art to cure themselves of art. Yeah, you're Dr. Dr. Rock. Um, <laughs> I want to know, for indie, for indie fans like myself, what was it like working with Stephen Pastel for the Memorial Device show? It was brilliant. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've worked with Stephen Pastel a lot during my life. I've known Stephen since I was 17, and we both worked together in a famous record shop called John Smith's in Glasgow in the 1990s. But having him do the music was absolutely amazing. I mean, 
Um, I, I went to see the play six times. I mean, I was like a groupie, mm. you know. <laughs> and I, I, I think I cried every single time at the end. I found it incredibly moving. There's a piece of music at the end. I have this rule with Memorial Device adaptations that you can't do Memorial Device's music. No one's allowed to do that because it's never going to live up to the fantasy that people have in their head of it. But everything else is up for grabs. So they recreated a piece of music that's a post memorial device piece of music it's recorded by lucas black and it's put together with a uh, big party and other members so they the, Stephen and, and his pals actually realized this piece of music and it plays at the end as the main character ross raymond dances and does this chant where he says who we yes yes and this music builds and builds and it is incredibly moving absolutely beautiful so i was really blown away by the way they realized that as well it was uncanny they really got you know, you can just tell the story in a play, but they got to the sort of, like, the psychic truth. They got to the sort of cosmic depth of what Memorial Device was about. It was it was an absolute honour to work with Stephen and the whole team. Graham Etoff, what a director. Paul Higgins, amazing actor. It was mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. We spoke to Will Hodgkinson last week, who's written about novelty rock in the 70s. Is there a musical movement that couldn't be written about, or is it all up for grabs now, do you think? Oh, I think it's all up for grabs. It's all up for grabs. And I think as, we are, as we're getting... As we're looking at it in more and more and more of a micro level, we're finding out how just complex all the cultures were around this type of music. And there's so it was so it was just such an exciting period. There's so many doing so many things. And even for me, I mean, I mean, I think of myself as a pretty serious head, but I'm still uncovering new stuff even from the time that I didn't know about. Incredible. Well, before we move on, I just want to register that one of the items found in the detritus in the caravan. Um, is something I'm exceptionally familiar with, an edition of Fantastic Four, the yeah. debut appearance of <laughs> Silver Surfer and the Watcher <laughs> and Galactus, which my hippie uncle impressed upon me and said, you've got to read this. This was, you know, freely available ultimate cosmic psychedelia for 8p in your corner shop. So I felt very warm towards that, David. You really got me on that one. <laughs> Well, and that's great because, I mean, Jack Kirby, Jack Kirby really is the ultimate psychedelic comic artist. He is. His, his, his panels are what the 1960s looked and felt like. Absolutely. As Grant Morrison called him, the William Blake of comics. Mm. He absolutely yeah. was. Brilliant. Well, we all Brilliant. absolutely lapped up this book, David. I yes. mean, really, it's unanimously, it's oh my God, yeah. I'm beginning that's to think wild. I need to get the audio book, though, because he's quite listenable, isn't he, David? He's not bad. He's, uh, he's not bad. He's, he's a, a bit of chatter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, we always ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs to uh, delight and enlighten your listening ears. David, what have you brought in for the listeners? It's uh, Kate LeBone, Pompey. You know, I only, it's Kate's fourth album. She's a Welsh producer, singer, songwriter. Um, I only discovered her this year. I heard her on one of my favourite radio shows, Aquarium Drunkard, and it began to get really under my skin. And it's it's so, it's weird, sort of weird experimental pop, but it's really quite original. It's hard to find any real comparison to it. It reminded me a little bit of one of my favourite Japanese bands, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Um, a little bit of the raincoats, perhaps. She uses this really woozy, slightly out of tune brass and odd time signatures. Her lyrics are fantastic, really intense psychodramas. And she has this really dramatic voice as well. Really singular, really exciting music. Well, she's a recurring favourite of a lot mm. of our guests on this show. She may ah. she may even be the archetypal culture punk guest pick, I think. So it's wow. a good one to have. That and wet leg. Yeah, I was that just about wet leg. to say, yeah. Kate LeBond and wet leg. Yes. Absolutely. Well, so Pompeii <laughs> by Kate LeBond, that's going on the playlist. The uh, link is available in the show notes. And here's a snippet. Hourglass 
as we said at the top of the podcast, it's the final blub edition of the Culture Bunker. But we didn't want to leave you with nothing to watch and listen to during the misty autumn months ahead. Q4, as it's known to marketing people, all the good (laughs) albums and telly comes out. We've compiled an informal but enticing list of some things we're really excited about. But first, let's get into the mood with a bit of new music. Yes, they're one of my favourites. And yes, I still have to persuade Andrew to like them. Here's Gilliband, formerly Girlband, with Backwash. I'll start with you, Yelena. Why are you jumping up and down like that? What are you excited about? I've got so much to be excited for this this uh, mm. autumn. I think so. I've got I've broken it down. We've got an album which is Blue Rev from All Vays. It's her third album, five mm-hmm. years after their debut. Are they All Vays or All Ways? I say I All Vays. I'm I'm <laughs> sure it's All Ways, but and I'm just doing a the Facebook. But that's how I'm going to call them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's their third album back. They've faced basically every single difficulty in making this. Their flood ruined all their equipment. They've had band mm-hmm. members change along. The way. Are they young people? Yeah, they're enough? very young. We're talking Canadian indie pop. Okay. Um, but what has stayed constant throughout that time is their ethereal vocals, very shoegazy guitars. Lovely listen. I can't wait to hear that. So that's my album. Mm-hmm. My tour is Lost Bitchos. Mm-hmm. They, their debut, Let the Festivities Begin, came out at the start of this year. They've been supporting the likes of Bell and Sebastian, good friends of the mm-hmm. podcast, and Franz Ferdinand. Where are they from? They are from. Where aren't they from? Is a better <laughs> way of putting this. Actually, they are a globe-trotting international mm-hmm. of joyous young women having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, they are from the likes of Western Australia, Sweden, England, Uruguay, and that's mm-hmm. reflected in their music. It's all very 70s, 80s, instrumental, cumbia. So yeah, it's just brilliant. It has me definitely jumping up mm-hmm. and down and bopping. And then my book slash exhibition, depending on which way you lean, is The Story of Art Without Men. It's a book mm-hmm. by Katie Hessel, who makes a podcast called um, The Great Women Artists. Mm-hmm. There is an accompanying exhibition taking place at the moment at Victoria Myro in London. Um, but you can get the book about it. You can listen to the podcast and the audiobook. You can do everything. And even if you're a man. Even if you're a man. And in fact, there's a fantastic story of male allyship that comes in the very first chapter mm. of one of the Italian Renaissance artists whose husband both let her keep her maiden name. This is in Renaissance Italy. I'd like to Good. Out, and raised yes. all of their 11 children so Good. she could go out and paint. So Good work, something man. for everyone in yes. there. And what's your film? And my film is Triangle of Sadness. Mm. This is the Ruben Ostland film that's going to be coming out end of October, so perfect time for Halloween. It is an absolute riot. It takes place on a yacht and it's basically what happens when everything goes wrong for all the very wealthy people on the yacht and it features Woody Harrelson just being an absolute legend as the drunken book captain. see it next week. Yay. Yes, it's super. Yeah, Andrew, what are you jumping up and down about? Well, because I'm a really old person and very nearly dead, I find it quite hard to stay on top of the new news. New, but there is some. Go- there's a one particular record which is mm. some good new old, mm-hmm. uh, an electronic duo called Plaid. P L A I D. Plaid. They used to be two thirds of Black Dog Productions, mm-hmm. who were Bjork's favourite act mm-hmm. for years, and more or less got mm-hmm. her into techno, which is what got her into making her album debut and created the electronic Bjork that became so famous. Plaid make 
just the most beautiful, complex, weirdly Beach Boysy mm. um, mm. electronic music. If you like Boards of Canada, if you like Plone, if you like the Radiophonic Workshop, this is right up your street, but mm-hmm. certainly up mine. And they have a new record coming out, which I cannot even pronounce. It's called <laughs> Fiorm Falox. Okay. That's F E O R M. Mm. New word F A L O R X. Mm-hmm. Who knows what that is? Put that into Wordle and see what happens. <laughs> um, but as, the, you know, it's essentially they're like a pop autica. You know, autica are ex- yeah. exceptionally yes. odd. Time signatures, sonic constructions yeah. are all over the place. It's all in. At, you know, three pi time yeah. and this kind of I, thing. Yeah, I'd file with bicep as well. There's a little bit of a plaid bicep yeah, crossover. Plaid, they? They're, they're mm. kind of halfway mm. between mm. between bicep and autica. Mm. Sonically strange and yet weirdly whistleable. And you say you're old. You know all the. You know all the. Well, this band has been going yeah. for 25 years. <laughs> okay. so it's not exactly the, not exactly <laughs> yeah. the, the, the the young people. But the the other stuff, the other stuff, I'm quite excited mm-hmm. about. Yep. Because I'm an overgrown child man, I am obviously very excited about Andor mm-hmm. on Disney Plus, which is the latest Star Wars thing. Feature, and it's the reason this is good is because yeah. it's taking you have place. To me it's, for this it's just going to take place yeah. in a time when the Star Wars universe was good and interesting. It's Empire time. Yeah. The bad guys are in charge, yeah. and all of our heroes are going to die. Who are the main characters in it? All yeah. of our heroes are going to die heroic deaths. Right. That's what makes it good. It's okay. it's good, the bad, and the ugly. It's heroic doom. Is what we're going to be watching. The main character is this, is this guy Cassian Andor, who right. was one of the characters in Rogue One. Which is, for my money, the best Star Wars really? movie. The one where where the forgotten team of you know spies yeah. have to steal the death star plans yeah. enabling right. the enabling the whole star wars thing to happen and these are like the marginal losers in fact david could write a book about them they're the marginal losers of the star wars universe mm. forgotten mm. by everybody and yet in rogue one they are real heroes yeah. and he's one of them and this is the prequel to the prequel okay. so i'm quite excited about that but while you're hammering your disney plus a mm-hmm. couple of old things that you definitely need to investigate legion which we talked about a lot on the podcast years ago. Yes, that's right. Is now on Disney Plus and Legion. Oh, is it? Is another annex. Because you're always telling us my to watch God, this. This is the oh, best Marvel television thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a kind of a distant annex of the Marvel Universe. Mm. It features a character played by Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey. Um, yes. What? Okay. What? Fine. What? No. Um, and he, he is uh, he is basically a superpowered telekinetic yeah. X Man figure. But that's not what's important about him. What's important about him is that he has multiple personality disorder. He has, se- he has serious mental illnesses. Yes, and this, superpowers yeah. are a metaphor for that and vice versa. Ooh, this is is anything around him real? Is he really experiencing it? Is he a hero? Is he a villain? Is yeah. he even an individual human being? The female lead in it is called Sid Barrett. Get an idea where we're coming from here. It's got <laughs> psychedelic dance sequences. It has the feel of... It's like Jodorowsky made a Marvel thing. Wow. Right? Um, and. Okay. Also, it's uh, Jermaine, Jermaine from Flight of the Concords is in it, imprisoned in a, a tiny pocket universe for large parts of the show. Went out, went out. It's out now. You oh, can watch out? all, okay, all so three seasons. Yeah, it, oh, ca- fantastic. it came out in 2017. It was completely yes, ignored, yes. criminally ignored. All three seasons right. are on Disney Plus right now. And you honestly, you must watch this. Yeah. Mind's blown as far as I can see. And one more, another thing on yep. Disney Plus, by the way, which we've mentioned more recently, uh, Mr. Inbetween, which oh, is essentially yes, the Australian yeah. Sopranos, the story of... A single dad trying to make it work with this kid that he's got custody uh, of, trying to make it work as a bouncer. Life's pretty crappy in, um, you know, downtrodden suburban mm. Australia. Oh, also, he's a hitman for hire who kills people. <laughs> so yeah. you have these beautiful just juxtapositions of... Um, it's the conflicted hitman genre, isn't it's, it? It is, yeah, yeah but, but uh, exceptionally well done. So mm. he'll, he, he's, he's shot a guy three times in the head and he gets home and then his daughter starts going, you didn't make me sandwiches this morning. You're a really bad person. Like, You're a really yeah. bad person. Wonderful. Three <laughs> seasons of it. 
Scott Ryan, the lead guy, yeah. is just incredible. And one, one last thing, and you'll notice the theme here. We're back on comics. Miracle Man was one of the great sort of reinventions of the comic genre in the 80s mm -hmm. by Alan Moore, which mm -hmm. is essentially, what would it really be like? What would it really be like if an omnipotent figure appeared mm. and effectively reshaped our mm -hmm. society, our politics, our economy? It petered out at the end of the 80s. Neil Gaiman has come back and he's going oh, okay. to finish his story. Oh, Neil goodness. Gaiman took over oh. it afterwards and now they're, yeah. they're completing the Neil Gaiman mm -hmm. story. So there's been like a 33-year interregnum mm -hmm. between the last couple of chapters, mm. and now it's being completed um, and it'll be available in your local comic shop soon. So I'm quite That's excited me. about that. There That's you go. Me. How about you, Sean? What's your... Well, your as agenda? mentioned, Gilliband, new mm. album out in October. I think this is their best yet. They sound they sound like a stream of consciousness novel, um, but they do. And they apparently have based this on hip hop. It doesn't sound anything like hip hop, but the way <laughs> they've deconstructed everything and put it back, and it's lots of feedback, a lot of wall of sound, mm. uh, and then someone shouting about yeah. putting Vaseline on a trout and other stories. And it is just I, one of my favourite music any ever, and I'm going to see them tonight. I'm very, very excited. It's sort of James Joyce on, mm. I don't know, ketamine, okay. <laughs> having fallen down the stairs after having eaten a curry. I mean, it's just something sort of almost completely indescribable. Mm. Roxy Music at 50. I'm old. I just want to go and see Brian Ferry Boogie yes. on stage. I'm really excited tastefully. about that. Ta very tastefully in a beautifully cut suit. Mm. Um, but there's something about it. I still think there's so much magic there. It just doesn't end for me. <laughs> I just got really excited about being able to do that. There are loads of films coming out which mm. may not be good but should be on a list. <laughs> so Blackbird, Michael Flatley's film, is very much recommended if you want to go and bring a bottle of wine to the cinema and some mates and see him just fall on his face. It's apparently the worst film ever made and puts the room into a completely different sphere. Yeah. Uh, he is a, a, a double agent. Or He's a very James Bond-style character and gets into lots of scopes with lots of good-looking ladies and it's apparently so dreadful, it's good. Does he so, do the dance? I don't think he does okay. the dance. Um, but, but that's it. Don't worry, darling. Obviously, the pre-publicity has completely ruined this this movie because apparently all the stars not speaking to each other mm. and doing this like that. but I, i'm quite interested it's olivia wilde mm. so to see what she does after book smart and to see if harry styles can act or not just want to have a look more interesting something you'd really like andrew a film about studio electronic which is the sheffield music scene mm. documentary that looks absolutely fantastic and i haven't seen it yet but that's all about the studio being in a council house in the Sheffield it's all like blocks. Clock DVA and all that. Yeah, bands, yeah, it's incredible. So. And how it just invented a whole scene and how the tech sometimes invents a whole scene just as mm. much as the people do. So I really, really want to see that. And lastly, if everyone, you know, we're talking Disney Plus, if everyone can go and watch Atlanta, which the third series is on Disney when the first two are on BBC. So it's got pushed mm. around. Donald Glover's, I mean, it's sort of, it was a sitcom and it's gone into something else and it's absolutely fantastic and actually now one of my favourite shows of the year right. Atlanta Series 3 I'm not going to say any more about it because you just have to go and watch it and don't really read anything before you go and see it but it's absolutely spot on well we've listed an absolute ton of stuff here so yeah. we'll break for the final show we'll break the rule of a lifetime and we'll put a whole load of links in the show notes David I know we didn't ask you to prepare but is there anything that yeah, you're really you excited and, and looking forward to going and watching seeing listening reading yeah gig wise I'm very excited I'm going to Ibiza for the first time in a couple Ooh. of weeks um, oi, oi. an event there hmm. and I'm very excited to see Rasheen Murphy oh, who's yeah. playing at the same festival. Her and show is fantastic. Her last yeah. yeah, yeah, I saw her, I saw her uh, uh, on television at Glastonbury and she was amazing as well. So I'm really psyched about that. And I'm also really psyched to see Bob Dylan 
on the 30th of October in Glasgow. First time I've seen Dylan in absolute years. Um, I loved the Shadow Kingdom film that he released during lockdown. Absolute masterpiece. And indeed, I even think possibly his last record, Rough and Rowdy Ways, might be one of my favourite Dylan albums of all time. Absolutely incredible. And it's quite a small venue considering for him. So I'm really excited about that. Well, here's a bit of one of my choices. This is Plaid with C.A. from the album, can I say this correctly, Fiom Falox. That's harder than my last name. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, as regular listeners know, we always ask our guests to bring in their favourite song of all time to add to our playlist. And for this finale, it's our turn as well. Finally, at last, I can't believe it's happened. David Keenan, you get to choose yours. What is your favourite tune of all time? Now, my favourite tune of all time is altered on an hourly basis. But um, right now, it's I'm Not There by Bob Dylan from The Basement Tapes. And why that one? The Basement Tapes is my favourite collection of music ever. It's a desert island disc for me. If I was only able to take one collection of music, I would take that because it literally has everything, every emotion you could possibly imagine. You know, it's fun, it's light, they're laughing, having fun, it's deep, it's spiritual, it's raw. And I think I'm not there in particular because it's essentially an unfinished track. Dylan never went back to it. And at points, he's making sounds rather than actually using lyrics. And I just love that snapshot of Dylan's process. And it's such a hauntingly odd and weird song. And to think that it only ever happened that once that moment pure magic radiophonic Bob Dylan <laughs> how about you Yelna? Uh, I too have never been asked this question and I too have always feared it because I take a Desert Island Discs approach in that I would like a library of emotions. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, so I'm going to go with the classic Yelena. I'll go for Never Turn Your Back on Mother Earth by Sparks yes. because it is just so bombastic. And I feel like if I could only listen to one song over and over again, why not make it one that's about the environment and that will also kind of cheer me up? It is the most incredible record. It you is... just It's a headphone song. You yeah. put your headphones on and you listen to it. And regardless of whether I'm walking down the street back home, after a long day or in the middle of a desert island I think it would make me feel exactly the same way which is overwhelmed and all music should make you feel like that and many many great songs are slogans and this is in the Lennon style it yeah. is a slogan Sean, what have you chosen? I didn't need any time to think about this because <laughs> it just pops up and I just believe in my subconscious and I trust my instinct Rock and Roll by the Velvet Underground oh really? Her Life Was Saved by Rock and Roll wild subject yeah and yeah, it's just <laughs> what, what thoughts does this summon up to you? Absolutely that. Also, there's a female protagonist in the song, um, which is a, makes a change about being saved by rock and roll. It, it's a purely about the power of music to absolutely change your life. And I could listen to it forever. What's your favourite tune of all time, Andrew Harrison? Pop music by hey. M. Radio Video. <laughs> Boogie with a suitcase. You're living in a disco. Forget about the rat race. Mm. This is my. Mo- I, these are the words I live by. There has never been a better record. It's often okay. Sometimes I like will slide and go for left to my own, left to my own device yeah. by the Pet Shop yeah, Boys. Yeah. Pop music is so the absolute distillation of everything mm. I love, not just about music, but about things. Yes. It's beautiful. It's yeah. plastic. It's immediate. It never ever ages. 
it is the most wonderful thing and I never, ever tire of hearing it. And it's a very fitting one for our final edition of The Culture Bunker because I'll never forget sending you a screenshot from when I was watching Vintage Top of the Pops and yes. saw... Robin the beautiful, yes. yeah, in the beautiful blue and orange suit, and said, "Is this the reason why Big Mouth is blue and orange? Because you <laughs> love this song." And you went, "No," and I out Big Mouthed you. But maybe it was <laughs> at some kind of deep psychological level. So all those tunes will be on our rolling playlist, which will stay there in perpetuity mm-hmm. as a memorial, like a, like a monolith. <laughs> this on is a, memorial playlist. This is memorial we could playlist. Call it. <laughs> yes, like yeah. a monolith on the moon. <laughs> And we are approaching the end of the podcast for real, for real. But we've got time for one last closing time chatter. What from the world of pop culture will we be talking about as the nights draw in? David Keenan, what's your closing time chatter? My closing time chatter is about UFOs. I was really (laughs) quite fascinated to hear that in Ukraine at the moment, astronomers have been spotting an absolute massive amount of UFOs. Wow. and I mean, I I have been obsessed by UFOs all my life. And one of the, of course, there was always these ideas that superpowers actually had had invented UFOs. They had secret military UFOs. And so, of course, all this conspiracy theory is going up again. Are these Russian uh, UFOs? But I feel very nostalgic about UFOs. I mean, again, growing up in the urgent and getting in a weird culture, UFOs were so big for me. And of course, maybe I was just impressionable. But going back to comics again, I was a big fan of 2000 AD and also Star-Lord. And I remember- you are- Star-Lord. me, I love you, you are me. <laughs> Brilliant. And then Star Lord would always say, Watch the skies. He was. And I really took that seriously. So I, I began to watch the skies. And of course, as soon as I started watching the skies, I saw a UFO. Um, <laughs> and I saw a UFO trail a plane. And the next day, we went to find where we thought it had been in the fields and we found all these burn marks on the ground. So we were totally convinced that we'd found um, a UFO landing site. And from then on, all the way through my childhood, I would pray at night that the men in black would come and take me away because I was really excited about it. It was almost like an initiation. You know, you get initiated into rock and roll and then the men in black initiate you into UFOs and alien technology. So alien technology is very much on my mind at the moment. And I was quite surprised to see that UFOs never go. You know, they always come back. As a Scotsman, you must be glad that 2018 was full of so many Scottish characters. Middenface McNulty, <laughs> so many Scottish <laughs> writers like Alan Grant as well. I think John Wagner's also lived in Scotland. You know, it was a heavily, yeah, right. he- for some reason, a heavily Scottish comic was 2018. Absolutely true. And it was really a formative thing. And you mentioned uh, uh, Marvel Man, Miracle Man as well. And also the, the other comic that, I, that really was important to me as a kid was Warrior. Which oh, God, was, yes. Which, which also you was too. where V for Vendetta came from. Yeah, and, get a room. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Yeah, incredible. Also, yeah, it really was, and the mad thing about it was you could buy it and join Menzies in Airdrie. So it was this little seditionary type thing, just in, in Airdrie High Street. Really exciting to see a cover appear when I was shopping with my gran. Well, what I've discovered over the years is that, like, when I was a kid buying all these things, everybody was like, "Let me buy that rubbish for." The older you get, you realise that literally every interesting person <laughs> was reading this stuff at the time, and it made a big impression. So that's what I want. What a great way to end the podcast on that one. <laughs> Yelena, what's your closing time chatter? Well, I'm breaking from character to also offer something comics related. Um, Funny Pages, I think, comes out today. It's the director Owen Klein's debut film. And it is all about a young man called Robert, who is 
relatively well off and he decides that he's going to leave school and become a comic artist mm-hmm. and it is just fast paced from the beginning all the way to the very end it's also an ode to real people everyone's got greasy hair acne <laughs> uh, eating pork rinds whilst they're brushing the frizz away um, but everyone is just a fantastic actor and a lot of the people in it are actually just real life people non-actors um, but it's really subversive because all of the characters you expect to be bad actually turn out to be good and everything's just kind of on edge so the creepy landlord barry is just absolutely perfect um and yes it's just fast paced from the beginning to the very end so much fun so much music in it as well and i think it draws as much from the director's time in new wave music shops as it does from his own personal love of comics too so it's an ode to illustration whole load of themes emerging on this show this week aren't there (laughs) andrew what's yours well um Mine is, couldn't be more obvious. I'm off to New York next week to see New Order oh, wow. and the Pet Shop Boys on the same bill. Andrew's perfect gig has been put together by two favourite bands playing in Madison Square Garden. The tour in America together. It's never, it's never happened before. I'm amazed about this. And I've this been, is the one that they had to cancel. I've been waiting times, two yeah. years for this yeah, thing. Yeah. I mm. thought I might actually die of old age before it happened. <laughs> but I'm off and I'm just really looking forward to it. Now, there's a theme is emerging, though, okay. because uh, now Suede and the Manic Street Peaches are also doing a classic double header band tour of the United oh. States of America. Obviously, Suede are having to do it as the London Suede. I hope that in solidarity, the Cardiff Manic Street Peaches <laughs> Exactly. build themselves yeah. as such but as that's such. what I'm looking forward to should be good that should be quite good it should yes, be I do quite the show that. shouldn't it yes. Sean how about you um, well obviously we're ending an era here at mm-hmm. the bunker and we are also it's the end of an era with all the current events going on in London you know what we were talking about listeners but I went to the Prince Charles cinema this week which mm-hmm. was wonderful and saw a John Cassavetes film and it was fantastic but they have a very simple sign on the door that says no we are not changing our name Good for them. <laughs> and that's all they needed to say. And I liked it that it marked one era, but carried on the era mm-hmm. into whatever comes next for us. And it made me laugh. Good for them. Absolutely. And that is literally the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to David Keenan. Thank you. That was an absolute pleasure. It was wonderful. Uh, it's so good to listen to you. Thank you for joining us for the One Last Culture Bunker. Industry of Magic and Light is out now. And remember, listeners, you can get all the tunes we've mentioned, plus those links to the yep. TV shows and films, on our on our show notes, and it's in the rolling playlist. From me, Jan Nishan, and producer Alex Reese, thank you all for listening to us uh, for the past few months and years. It has been one of the most fun things we've done, and we're definitely going to miss it. This time next week, there'll be a regular bunker here, but do keep an eye out for more exciting developments from the House of Podmasters. And don't forget our Big Mouth Back catalogue. Search Big Mouth on any podcast app, or just follow, again, a link in the show notes. It's going to be a link festival. That'll keep you going. You will hear the Culture Bunker music again every now and again. It's just too good to leave on the shelf. But for now, it's the end but the moment has been prepared for. Goodbye, Culture Bunker. We'll never see your like again. The Culture Bunker, the artist formerly known as Big Mouth, was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, Sean Pattenden, Yelna Sofranievich and Alex Andreu. Audio production was by Sophie Black, Robin Lieben, Jade Bailey and me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker was a Podmasters production. Podmasters.